Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, on view at the National Gallery of Art from December 13, 2015 through March 20, 2016, presents some 50 bronze sculptures and related works dating from the 4th century BC to the 1st century AD. They span the Hellenistic period, when the art and culture of Greece spread throughout the Mediterranean and lands once conquered by Alexander the Great. The exhibition provides a unique opportunity to witness the importance of bronze in the ancient world when it became the preferred medium for portrait sculpture. In this public symposium, held on March 18th and 19th, 2016, in conjunction with the exhibition, David Sider concentrates on how contemporary science and art appear in the poetry of this period. The deservedly well-known mathematicians Archimedes and Erasthenes each wrote technical epigrams on mathematical problems, perhaps the most technical examples of one of Hellenistic poetry's most famous genres, didactic poetry. Sider also focuses on Posidippus, his published book of epigrams, and his ekphrastic poems on statues and carved gems. Greek Hellenistic literature is a vast subject. It's had an efflorescence over the last 30 years, which is truly amazing. It was kind of ignored for a long time, um, and I can't possibly begin to talk about it all. I'm just going to talk about uh, some very few ways in which Greek art, thought, and poetry came together. And even this, of course, will be incomplete. First, though, a uh, rapid summary of Hellenistic literature which is characterized um, by its poetry more than its prose. And in fact, I challenge anyone in the audience to name more than two prose writers from whom we have complete works from the Hellenistic period. Um, There are very few. I mean, you have to go a little bit later. Uh, I mean, there's Polybius and Dionysus of Halicarnassus. And then who? Well, there's Dionysius of Thrax, the great grammarian. That we, there's Diophantus, a mathematician, and so on. But everyone else, and we have many names. We've had the names that Richard Mason just gave us, but they're fragmentary. But we do have complete poetry from this, uh, poems from this period, as well as uh, many, many fragments. Poetry is fairly well known, starting with uh, to name the people from whom we have complete examples, Callimachus, Theocritus, who was mentioned earlier, and Apollonius of Rhodes, who wrote the epic, the Argonautica. The poets of this era are characterized by a love and a reverence for the poetry of the past. One could say the same about the artists. But combined with a desire to write poems that both allude to and yet are distinctly different from that of their predecessors. As Pound said, make it new to T.S. Eliot. This is what they wanted. This is, in a sense, new wine in old bottles. But if you remember St. Matthew, he warns us about putting new wine in old bottles. Wine is liable to bubble up and cause breakage in the old vessels. Well, if the old bottles are the time-honored genres of archaic and classical Greek poetry. This was a risk, nonetheless, that Hellenistic poets were ready and eager to take. They even kind of patched together different genres to produce some very effervescent poetry indeed. Two of their main models, of course, every Greek poet's models, as well as the Roman models, were Homer and Hesiod. They stand in the background of just about every Greek poem that was ever written after them. 
um, especially in a, a way that not everyone is aware of. Hesiod was a model for didactic poetry. We'll talk about this in a bit. Furthermore, uh, since the various forms of classical poetry had been determined largely by performance venues, usually religious in nature, but also including the formal demands of uh, sepulchral and dedicatory inscriptions, they tend to be rather traditional in nature and genre. Uh, by Hellenistic times, however, especially in Alexandria, these formal occasions were either no longer in existence or had undergone major changes. The development of new performance spaces alone would, if not inevitably, then certainly understandably enough, lead to further changes in, in literary form. Just as significant, however, was the even more radical change from the largely oral nature of classical poetry to what the new audiences were expecting. They, sorry, poetry written for readers alone. By contrast, even when a fifth century reader sat down with a text, as we know they did, the original venue, tragic festival, victory celebration, praise of a god, etc., this would inevitably be, be mentally recreated in the reader's mind. When Hellenistic poets wrote directly for readers, though, they were free to create their own setting. Thus, they could move mime, typically urban, to a bucolic setting hereby producing what came to be regarded as a new genre, namely bucolic or pastoral poetry. And his, in his hymns, Callimachus could narrate as ongoing action what no actual classical hymn would dare, such as the opening and the creaking of temple doors or the noise made by excited worshipers. Old genres containing new poems, that then is what Hellenistic poetry is mostly about leading to what German classicists and the rest of us take following their lead called Kreuzung der Gattungen, the mixing of genres. It's true that there are examples of genre mixing in classical literature. For example, in, in a, an, an instance of one genre could be incorporated into another, but this was done unselfconsciously and without any sense of daring. For example, a hymn to a god embedded in an epic narrative or in some tragic action. Hellenistic poets, however, are anything but unselfconscious. Two of the most poetic, sorry, the most popular poetic forms in Alexandria are excellent examples of this. I refer to epigram and didactic poetry, both very illustrative of the new spirit of the new age. A little bit on didactic poetry first, then epigram, and then some examples of a merger between these two apparently disparate genres. Didactic, you can tell from the name, is when a poet takes scientific thought and shapes it or reshapes it in poetic form. Hesiod, who wrote of the origin of the universe in one poem and of good farming technique in, this, in another poem in the 6th century BC, wrote down his own thoughts. This, too, is what the pre-Socratic philosophers Xenophanes, Empedocles, and Parmenides did in the 5th century. But the few examples we have and know about from the archaic or classical periods could not have led one to predict the great popularity of this genre in the Hellenistic age. And by giving you the names I've just, the, the four names, that pretty much exhausts what, uh, 
the bulk of what we know of didactic poetry in the archaic and classical period. But to name only the authors of long Hellenistic poems, Aratus versified a treatise on the heavenly constellations and on weather signs, and Nicander wrote on poisonous snake bites and their antidotes. But whereas earlier poetry was meant to be taken seriously for their content, nobody bitten by a poisonous asp is going to go to the highly recondite poetry of Nicander looking for an anecdote. You're going to get a, a prose treatise, or better yet, a physician, like, like for example, Nicander. Um, to put it another way, whereas Hesiod, Empedocles, and Parmenides wanted their readers actually to learn and to take their heart to, to heart, their own philosophical and ethical thoughts, the Hellenistic didactic poetry, poets, for the most part, had no such aims, nor did they, again, for the most part, even write down their own thoughts, but rather they went to one or another prose treatise for content. Aratus supposedly was handed the uh, astronomical text by Eudoxus and challenged to turn it into verse. This may sound somewhat disparaging, but the fact is, these poets could be quite good and quite popular. The, the statistic, bare as it is, that we know more than 50 Hellenistic didactic poets, many with one, more than one work to their credit, attest to this genre being thought well worth reading indeed. This carries through into the, into the Renaissance. There are so many manuscripts of Aratus in uh, Venice alone. It's just amazing. It was, he, his popularity lasted. Moreover, when Hellenistic poetry moved to Rome and began to be written in Latin, didactic continued to be composed, most famously perhaps by Horace, whose Ars Poetica reveals by its very title, the poetic art, that it's modeled on the treatises called Technai in Greek. Ovid, too, was a fan of the didactic genre, writing several on various aspects of love, including the Remedia Amoris, which was an anti-love treatise. This is a guide for men and women who want the tips on how to rid themselves of unwanted lovers. <laughs> One of the ways is to pick up a copy of a didactic poem like he see it and read it, and then you say, goodbye. <laughs> They're Greek models. Um, the Greek models of the Roman di were didactic poems on a wide range of subjects. To name but few, we only have titles for most of these, there were didactic poems on astronomy, medicine, <laughs> wine, painters, of interest to you, sailing, snakes, hunting, stones, mythological metamorphoses, islands, and beekeeping, to say nothing about a poem on the history of the Jews, if that even qualifies, because generally didactic poems were on technical subjects. Did any of these poets put their own thoughts into poetic form? At least two, I could actually come up with a few more names, did so, namely the scientist Eratosthenes that we heard about from Richard, and the mathematician Archimedes, but Richard was hurrying along at this point, Eratosthenes, 3rd century BC, left his home of Cyrene. If you want to see what someone from Cyrene looks like, go into the exhibit. There's a nice bronze bust there. He left Cyrene, didn't go too far, to the bustling center of Alexandria, where he even served as one of the head librarians of the library Richard talked about. 
His scientific interests were wide, as Richard said, including, I'm actually ready to show you a slide now, geography. Um, this is the world, according to Eratosthenes. It's very, very detailed for what he knew at home and very, very vague for what's far away. Um, and clearly, the New Yorker cover by Steinberg was modeled on something quite like this. But he also wrote on music, and he wrote on astronomy. And they, but there was one mathematical problem of interest to him that refused to provide a neat answer for all of his predecessors who wanted to know it. Namely, and, and it's a subject that would not be likely, a, a likely subject for versification. Namely, how to double the volume of a cube while maintaining its shape. This calls for an equation involving the cube root, finding the cube root. This problem was taken up by thinkers such as Plato, the mathematician named Hippocrates, not the, physici the physician, hero of Alexandria, Apollo Apollonius, not the uh, epic writer, as well as Eratosthenes, who in his own writings mentions disparagingly the early attempts of Archytas, Menachmus, and Eudoxus. Basically, um, if you've got a side A, um, you want, the volume is A cubed, twice that is X cubed, where X is the unknown, and we want to know what X is. So if we just make A one, you wind up with two equals X cubed, i.e. X equals the cube root of two. Got it? Okay. Now this number <laughs> is an irrational number. It's actually very close to 1.26. It could not be calculated mathematically, Mechanical means were all that could be devised to approximate the answer, which calls for determining two means proportionals between A and B. Eratosthenes' own attempt is laid out in the letter to one of the Ptolemies, Ptolemy III, to which is appended an epigram on the solution. And it was, the epigram was not intended to rehearse all the details laid out in the letter, um, but the, uh, both text and epigram are considered, although spurious for a long time, now considered genuine, especially by Reviel Netz, who is the world's leading authority in ancient math now at uh, Stanford University. Um, and why, why shouldn't the poem be genuine? He, we, he wrote poetry. We have fragments of some others. The letter and the accompanying poem are quoted by a fifth century AD commentator, uh, on Archimedes named Eutokius as part of his long survey of the problem. Here it is. According to Eutokius, the epigram was inscribed on a bronze working model of the device invented by Eratosthenes described in his letter. There are three squares, this is on the top, Three squares are set in grooves. This is not a drawing. This is, I mean, this is a drawing. <laughs> this is not a pipe either. But this is a drawing of an actual device of bronze and wood. Um, the, the, the squares are set that they can move back and forth in front of each other so that a line drawn, and now we're down to the second one, and I've spelled it at this for the mathematicians in the audience. That's there below explaining it all. But you can draw lines between points at various things in order to determine that mean. Um, I'm sorry to, to say that um, I can't show the original, but these were bronze plates. 
And you all know how rare bronze from antiquity is. It's long ago been melted down. It's not too difficult to imagine, though, this is an exhibit, uh, I mean, just reconstructed. It could serve as an example of abstract art, but it could also serve as an interactive museum exhibit. This would be very easy. I, have, I tried it with a little internet searching to see if a, a museum of science had reconstructed it for an interactive exhibit. I failed, but maybe there is one out there. The poem is an epigram in the original sense of the word, something inscribed on something else. In the usual verse scheme, elegiac couplets. Here are two lines, and it's, uh, I'll read it in, in verse, not too authentically. Tois the garen pinakesi methographa muria teochois reiken ek pauru puthmanos archamanos. It's poetry, and it's actually, an ins it's a didactic poem. Poems, didactic poems tend to have the, uh, the student or the audience uh, identified and embedded within the poem, and in this case, it's Ptolemy himself. With these plates, you could easily fashion a myriad of mathematical means, including the cube root, starting from a solid base. In other words, sign up for my math class and you'll learn how to do it. But the main thing is, it's poetry and it's bronze at the same time. Um, now let's move on to Archimedes. Um, Eratosthenes' contemporary, who is an even greater mathematician. Indeed, historians of mathematics, like Revial Nitz, consider him one of the greatest mathematicians of all times. And uh, I'll skip over some stuff that Richard spoke about. Um, but he just loved to solve problems. There's even a few uh, not quite consistent anecdotes about his death, but the uh, that basically it comes to the fact that a Roman has conquered uh, Syracuse, wants to kill him, and he says, wait, wait, I'm almost finished solving this problem. Let me finish that, and then you can kill me, and the Roman poet, impatient, kills him anyway. <laughs> he is not, however, known for writing poetry, like Eratosthenes. So the poem attributed to him by two medieval manuscripts may simply be, well, uh, running out of time, a versification of his work. Let me... Uh, I'll try to keep to the schedule. Um, this is, Richard showed you this. This is this palimpsest. Um, it was, it sold for $2 million about 12 or so years ago at Christie's. Um, here's what he wanted to work. In the, in the, in the Odyssey, Circe instructs Odysseus on his journey home. He says, you will reach the island of Thrinacria which is Sicily, and Thranacria means triangle, which is why I reminded you that Syracuse, Sicily is triangular in shape. There you will find many cattle of Helios. There are seven herds, each consisting of 50 animals. Well, the simple mathematical procedure needed to find the number of cattle is merely seven times 50, and that, this is too easy for Archimedes. He set himself a far more difficult task, which calls for algebraic calculations of the sort he himself largely invented. Furthermore, as a resident of Sicily, he would have had his own reasons for building up the number of cattle it can contain. Um, he, he has eight unknowns. The bulls can be white, black, brown, or, or dappled, similarly for the cows. Um, the first of seven equations involving these eight unknowns is, and here's, I won't read it in Greek, but it, it's poetry. 
but it translates as the white bulls are half plus a third of the black bulls plus a number equal to all of the yellow bulls. Well, this is what I wrote on the, on the bottom line. It's algebra in, in verse, in Greek verse. Does this count as a didactic poem? Well, perhaps, but can you solve his, all of his equations? Uh, no, you can't. The smallest possible solution has 2,000, two, sorry, 206,545 digits. I could read this to you and go way beyond the time that fire would like me to go. <laughs> but what you can see, the takeaway from this is that literature in Alexandria, I'm giving you extreme examples, had become quite a learned activity. Um, and an intellectual business that took the aesthetic composition and complexity of its poems far more seriously than it took its contents. And now, um, I go, I'm going to skip a little and go on to epigram because I want to end where we sort of began yesterday with Poseidippus. And uh, these are epigrams in the Karamaikis. And this is once upon a time, this is in classical and archaic period, a uh, inscription attached to a tomb could refer to what the audience, I mean the passerby, saw. I give you this example, stop and grieve at the tomb of Croesus, who died young in battle or something like that. So you know, this is Croesus. He doesn't have to have something around his neck like this. Um, doesn't even have to look like him. Um, and then there's Frasicleia. Tomb of Frasicleia, no syntax, seems to be a title embedded into the verse. I will always be called young maiden, Kore. Instead of marriage, thanks to the gods, I'll always have this name. <laughs> so you just, it, there's no description. Um, but what happens later is um, um, elegies are um, in an epigrammatic form, and also ekphrasis, exact description. And ekphrasis starts out life as a word that just means a description of something, meaning a vivid description of something. Dionysus of, uh, uh, not of Heliconesis, the, the uh, uh, Diodorus Siculus, uh, Dionysus of Halicarnassus talks about ekphrases of heroism, of plagues, of winters. So you know this is of all sorts of things. Um, but it came to be um, very soon a, a description by a prose author of a work of art for the reader who is not seeing the work of art. And they can be quite precise indeed. And this is what we have some examples of, and we've had a number of references to this, by Poseidippus, who is only recently discovered. His, um, he, he was uh, honored, uh, as you can see on the bottom here, by uh, an inscription, a public inscription, honoring him for being a sort of kind of ambassador. To Poseidippus of Pella, how are you going to describe him? Um, usually that's enough. You, you name a person from another town and you give his town. He's the epigrammatist. He was a famous epigrammatist, so famous that a bronze statue was erected of him, uh, identified by, as by Poseidippus, doesn't say of Pella, so some people think this is another poet, a comic poet. Um, I myself tend to agree with recent authors that it's our guy. Um, but he, uh, he wrote epigrams, and they were only recently uh, published, discovered in a papyrus. Here is a one-to-one. -one. 
I'm giving you this as one-to-one -one so you can see the size of what we have. Of course, the role originally went much more than this. Um, there were, it, it caused quite a lot of excitement. There were lots of conferences on it. The first one here in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Hellenic Studies, but many, many more, including one in Cincinnati where Andrew Stewart uh, uh, spoke on it. Here's a picture of it. And um, at this point, we could get to the uh, image. And this is this has to be done this way. And we're going to just see this from the what you can do now with digitization. This was discovered in uh, or bought by a, a bank in uh, Milan who let the university have it. You can just keep going in and in and in and actually read it and get very distinct, that's perfect, images um, which are larger than the papyrus itself than what I showed you. Um, and so uh, you don't have to go to Milan where this what I just showed you is laid out between two large sheets of glass. So back to ekphrasis, this is what, um, among other things, we find in this papyrus. So we have, let's, let's do with this. Um, Giancarlo, uh, uh, Gianfranco showed this yesterday. Uh, this is the first in the statuary parts. Um, imitate these works, and what he's doing here, um, I've, uh, uh, change the text a tiny bit. But basically, there's, uh, the idea is of a, you're competing with the past. You're, you're given the old uh, genres, only the uh, artistic form, and you're, you're putting something new in them, and you're running the risk of, uh, of uh, breakage, of, in a way. But you, you, I've, you can see, there's the ancient ways of the Colossi, that antique, older than Polycletus, namely Hagalades, and rather, but put before them uh, the new works of Lysippus, and that's referred to in the first line for comparison. So if the contest is necessary, Lysippus is the foremost of newfangled artists. Um, and so it's, uh, the Greeks are agonistic from the very beginning, and they keep this up. They compete with each other. They compete with uh, the past. And, um, um, but are we, how, are we running out of time? <laughs> well, I mean, I, what I wanted is just one little thing is uh, among, there are statuary poems and there are also poems on, uh, which referred to earlier by uh, uh, Ken on uh, uh, gems. And um, here's one. Um, this shining stone, the stone has been restored as ruby, but I think that's wrong. Out of, it's gone from the, man, the papyrus. Out of which the engraver carved a bowl takes hold of the viewer's swimming gaze towards the helichrys flowers with its triple growth. And you, lady, this is a dedicatory epigram, um, you, lady, lover of novelty, notice that again, receive it graciously at a banquet, meaning put it on your table. Um, the uh, what Helichrys is uh, uh, 
a flower like this. I can't, I don't know if we have a vase like this, but you can see it has a triple growth. Um, in the middle it comes up, and on the side it comes up like this, with slight things like this. I know if my mother had this, she'd put olives around the outside, she'd put the celery and the pepper in the inside, and the dip in the middle. So I think this is, if we can find an example in a museum, um, this is, would be wonderful, but, uh, well, he often, he combines various things. He'll talk about the artist, he'll talk about the donor, he'll talk about the, the recipient, he'll talk about the material, he'll talk about um, the, where it's going to appear, on the arms or on, around the neck or so. Um, and he'll also, as uh, uh, Ken alluded to, we'll talk about what, the, what the, it looks like, the combination of the image itself and the, uh, um, uh, the, the surface, whether you put oil on it or the, the, in, the innate color of the stone combining. And we saw examples of that from Ken's. So um, with, uh, again, returning to our starting point of Pasidippus and Hellenistic art, I think I will say goodnight. <laughs> this has been the National Gallery of Art podcast.